Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Always Already podcast. My name is John McMahon. I'm here with my lovely friends and co-hosts. Rachel. And B. And so I think what we'd like to do to start this inaugural episode is maybe talk a little bit about what we had in mind with the podcast and kind of the format that it's going to take. Sounds good. Let me go ahead and say uh, the first 15 minutes of each podcast. Or more. Or more. Uh, will consist of a discussion that we have uh, placed around a book um, for a given week. Um, and this discussion is totally informal, um, and we're coming at it uh, from multiple angles. Um, and hopefully we'll provide some substantive aspect um, of the readings in what we do with our own work. Great. And the second section, also about 15 to 20 minutes, will be... Or more. Or more will be an interview with a scholar or activist working on various issues within critical and social and political theory. And so in the final section of each episode will be, um, we're going to answer some advice questions from you, our listeners and friends and colleagues. Um, so send them to us, first of all, alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Um, because, you know, they always say that theorists don't have any real-world applicability and don't know anything about the real world. But we can prove them wrong. Exactly. And we hope to. We do. So in this episode, you're going to hear uh, a discussion of the first chapter and preface of Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. We're going to have a conversation with Susan Buck Morris from the CUNY Graduate Center, um, and then some special advice questions. And maybe we also, though, should introduce each other. Um, and we thought what would be fun is if instead of introducing ourselves individually, we could actually do that for each other. So, Rachel, do you want to tell me about B? Sure. I'll tell you about B. So, B was born in North Carolina but lived a lot of his life in New Mexico. And um, he, before coming to CUNY Grad Center, got his master's in politics from NYU and worked at Lambda Legal, which works on and deals with transgender rights. Um, currently, he's in approaching the dissertation phase writing of his scholarship here in the political science department and specifically within the political theory subfield, which deals with um, transgender epistemologies. Um, and I will talk a little about John McMahon, um, who is currently a Ph.D. candidate in the political science department here at the CUNY Grad Center. Um, his dissertation is focusing on an effective affective reading of the canon in political theory, which includes the range from Hobbes, boo, uh, to... <laughs> Hobbes is way more fun than you realize. Okay, right? well, Hobbes and Marx and a variety of other really brilliant uh, things. Arendt and Beauvoir. Arendt and, and maybe Beauvoir. Hegel. And maybe Hegel. Go Beauvoir. <laughs> and maybe some Deleuze. Maybe. Um, <laughs> so Rachel is in her third year here at the CUNY Graduate Center in political science, more specifically political theory, and she hails from Boston and has spent some time also in Atlanta. Um, and her dissertation, which is really fascinating, it has to do with kind of rethinking the frameworks we use to think about uh, migrant workers, domestic workers, care workers, um, specifically in Israel, and particularly thinking about embodiment and citizenship. Does that sound about right? Sounds great. All right. So on that note, before we turn to our discussion of Deleuze and Guattari, uh, we want to remind the listeners that you can go to our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. There you can find a list of the texts we're going to discuss in upcoming episodes, find out more about us, see pictures of my beautiful co-hosts. And your beautiful um, face. And what else is on the website that they should know about. Lots of cool things. Oh, also summaries of each week's reading. So there'll be a brief summary and links to relevant uh, other web pages dealing with whatever we're reading that week. Exactly. You can also find us on Facebook. Just look up Always Already Podcast. You can find us on iTunes if you search for Always Already Podcast. And last but not least, you should email us at alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you just want to give us general feedback, that works. But specifically, we're looking for texts that you would like to request that we discuss on the show, first of all. And second, and perhaps most importantly, you need to send us some advice questions that we can answer. Um, sometimes it's ourselves, and if you're really lucky, we'll answer them in the guise of uh, various dead theorists. right? Or uh, current pop stars. Yes, yes. and or. So be on the lookout for that. Send us an email. Visit our website. And uh, let's get on to talking about Deleuze and Guattari maybe a little bit. Sounds good. B, I think maybe you wanted to start us off. Sure. Um, as I was reading through the first chapter, what struck me, um, and maybe this is just from my own personal uh, you know, studies in action and practice, but 
I felt like what DNG were, um, were doing was an attempt. I like they were going to call them DNG. DNG is like it's way better, uh, I think, for summation purposes. But uh, to think about how do we engage in action, and perhaps are they giving back a sense of autonomy and agency um, to the subject, in uh, whatever or however we you know we proceed to read um, the way they deconstruct psychoanalysis, for instance. Um, the way that they talk about the edible triangle and attempt to sort of take that apart and reassert this element of of acting, um, even within uh, sometimes frameworks that seem to sap action, um, it seems like what they're doing is calling for particular practices that um, I think develop um, personhood and, and subjectivity and things of that nature. And so I wanted to sort of get a sense of whether you, you know, saw that in the reading at all. Because I think that in many of these writings, there's a tendency to talk about the subject as someone who cannot act um, without always, in essence, always already being within a field of ideological interpolation. Sure. Which I feel like D&G are, are vehemently um, trying to dismantle. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is that, I mean, it comes across throughout this first section of the book is that they're really trying to turn kind of everything that's been the negative in thought, um, you know, whether it's like, I mean, not specifically in the text, like the Hegelian sublation, or, you know, in their terms, things like disjunction and fragmentation and kind of those sorts of, I mean, either epistemological or ontological categories and processes into things that instead of being negative and destructive are productive. Um, so I guess maybe I think in terms of kind of action and practice as much in terms of production as I do in those specific terms. Yeah, I would agree that they also waver somewhere between, um, you know, giving power back to the subject or reinventing the subject apart from that triangle of mommy, daddy, child. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the very humorous um joking about Melanie Klein's study with the, the children in the hospital room and Dick and, oh, the, <laughs> Dick and mommy, Dick yeah, and that's... mommy, you know, um, I think in that sense, they're giving autonomy back to the child, but in the, in a, the very specific form of the schizophrenic in a way. So it's this, it's precisely the schizophrenic that can circumvent that Oedipal triangle. And it's that figure of the schizophrenic that is in some ways kind of I mean, it's, it's the paradigm of action and practice in response to these, you know, overcoding tendencies or these kinds of things that freeze up and close off production or desire or action in the first place. Yeah, I know. I agree. I, you know, as I was just reading through and thinking, um, especially about these notions of like what is larger, what is macro, um, it, we have a tendency in the social sciences to take macro level analyses as the explanatory power, the thing that gives um, you know, subjects and individual behavior meaning. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what D&G is doing or are doing is suggesting like that... like merging them into one person. Right. D&G yeah. is, yeah. Uh, yeah, as a thinker, as a single entity, uh, D&G is attempting to give the individual back a state of, of being interesting, right? It's, it's an attempt to say, look, we can think about capital, we can think about capitalism, and we can think about psychoanalysis in these ways that, as you said, John and, and Rachel, are productive in one sense, productive of the subject, but in, a, in another sense, that gives the kind of, it gives room for the subject to act, right? And act in ways that mediate those things that are so-called external and macro. At the same time, I think it's interesting that the subject isn't centered in this process. The subject is also an offshoot of various, um, of the process of production. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it's not the subject act, acting on its own with a sort of, in the middle of a concentric circle. It's sort of, you know, a, a side branch of a broader tree machine. I mean, I think in that, like, the raises the question of whether we think that's actually, I mean, that that's part of this attempt to kind of create more room for, for action or for practice, right? That if by being decentered, the subject actually has more kind of capacity to engage various forms of production or desiring production or connect to various different machines or what have you, more so than they were if they were the center and kind of, you know, the traditional Western liberal subject or something like that, or even the psychoanalytic subject or even the Hegelian subject or even the Lacanian subject. 
right? They're kind of trying to decenter all of those kinds of subjects. Well, even in the sense that, you know, in many instances, in many moments, I think, but there's one in particular, I can't find the page, uh, in which D&G talk about history as being a series of contingencies and so mm-hmm. avoiding this Hegelian philosophy of history that there's a telos to anything, mm-hmm. um, which obviously goes hand in hand with the way Foucault uh, theorizes history as well. Um, but thinking about the subject as being uh, contingent, but operating amidst f- a flow in a series of contingencies in which the subject has to, or not has to, but has the opportunity to relate to all of these varying degrees of, of, of uh, spontaneity, of creativity, mm-hmm. uh, in which there, you know, even in the discussion of the machine, I feel like, and what was most mind blowing for me is that sometimes we take a machine for granted. I think mm-hmm. we think of a machine as being this sort of automated thing that sort of that more or less does what we put into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that D and G talk about machines are so like they're so multifaceted. It's mm-hmm. in the sense that the machine is comprised of multiple mm-hmm. working parts, and those parts don't always do exactly what we think they're doing. And, and actually, so, the point is that they break, right? right? That's I mean, they want to emphasize that yeah. throughout. It's, it's breaks and ruptures and discontinuities mm-hmm. that are the condition of possibility for there to be machines mm-hmm. in the first place. But that also means that there's freedom for. I mean, you know, to use later terminology, they will like there are lines of flight built into machines themselves. Actually, it's funny you say that because the whole time I was reading this, I had this kind of steampunk image in my head, like a, <laughs> like, no, like a Jules true. Verne time machine. Yeah. <laughs> That's my Halloween costume no, next true. year is steampunk to lose. Totally do it. Totally do it. But about, the, but about that, about the subject, I think another thing is that the subject doesn't possess the action into losing mm. Atari. So yeah. the subject isn't the one delivering in some kind of linear trajectory the action. The subject is part of a process and creates a process, but also action is happening to the subject all around. And I think that's especially really interesting if we think about very traditional, canonical political theory. So, for example, Hannah Arendt, like if we're going to put this in practical terms or like what does it mean to have, you know, a different for, a different kind of subject in the in the empirical world. Yeah. Um, Hannah, somebody like Hannah Arendt, what does it mean to be free of totalitarianism or to be, you know, an autonomous Agent, political agent, it means to be able to um, to undertake action. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not just, so th- when the, the moment in D&G that the, the subject ceases to be the person delivering an action, and action's also happening to them, how does that change the framework of what it means to be a political subject? It's really, I mean, it's really interesting when you bring up Arendt. I mean, I'm writing about Arendt and kind of affect, and I ends up, will end up being Deleuze and Guattari in my dissertation. I, it's, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, so thank you for giving me an idea for my dissertation. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you, Rachel. I actually think that if in the way that, like, Arendt is interested in people acting in concert and in connection, huh, so perhaps, like, something like, you know, the notion of the subject that is decentered and connects and acts and is acted upon and acts with mm-hmm. is maybe that's more u- a useful subject for the kinds of politics and the kind of w- like worldings that Arendt's talking about mm-hmm. than like Arendt's subject herself. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I always think of them, you know, as the Deleuzian subject or the D&Gian subject <laughs> uh, in this sense is always a moving target. Um, and, you know, you never really know exactly what so-called power relation or force of relation um, is working on the subject at any given time. And so they throw out this idea, like, for instance, what you were saying is how does one act, and if we're thinking about a rent, you know, they're throwing out this idea that we have psychoanalysis to explain unconscious behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, we're throwing out that ideological um, explanations are everything. Um, and so it, it, in a way, requires us to get down to the street level, as it were, of what people are doing as social scientists. Because, I mean, you think about the historical time in which they're writing. Mm -hmm. You know, they see a variety of collapses. Um, They see a variety of revolutions. They see they're, you know, they're they're anti-fascist. Yeah, exactly. So um, so they see they're writing in this anti-fascist way what they're identifying as sort of intellectual fascism, Um, Mm -hmm. psychoanalysis being one of them, ardent, like, orthodox Marxism being another. Um, of course, Deleuze being a student of Jean Hippolyte, so it's mm-hmm. like, how do we think past even the Hegelian framework of, sure. um, of philosophy? Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think also that they're not necessarily trying to do away with psychoanalysis. I think that they're trying to add to it in a different way by, um, rather than 
well, I guess the main part of their 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 endeavor, rather than putting Marx and Freud in, in parallel with each other, putting them kind of inextricably woven into each other, in as much as desire and the social yeah. are, are interwoven. But I actually, at first when I was reading, I thought that they were kind of trying to do away with psychoanalysis, but I... I actually don't think that's what they're completely... Yeah, I was going to make kind of a similar point. And this is, I think, a tension that they pull off really, really effectively, I mean, at least in what we've read of the book so far, and that is that they want to, you know, radically critique psychoanalysis, but keep that intention with, you know, they say the key psychoanalytic move of psychoanalysis, the initial move of psychoanalysis is, let's think about the production of the unconscious and let's think about desire or libido. Mm -hmm. The problem is that psychoanalysis then boxes that into Oedipus and yeah. the mommy-daddy-me triangle and keeps having to reintegrate everything into kind of totalizing holes instead of thinking, hey, it's actually really radical if we just think about the production of desire and if we just think about, you know, the way that the unconscious is produced and doesn't have to be, as they say, doesn't have to be mediated metaphysically or something in order to interact with the social, the social field. And I think what to me was the most inspiring was actually the critique of the idea that the unconscious is merely expressive and that it's mm -hmm. productive. And so I think mm -hmm. that idea, like really what they're against in psychoanalysis is the way that the unconscious as expressive has sort of taken over all of psychoanalysis in a certain way rather than seeing it as in other forms. Well, a structural form of the unconscious, too. I mean, so they, so on the one hand, they're looking at Lacanian trends in psychoanalysis which is to say, oh, look at these signifying chains and look at how well they explain, you know, as their structure is fun. fun. Look at these signifying chains as language and look at how they structure our thought and look at this, that, and the other. Um, but then by the end of the chapter, they actually say that what, psychoanal what psychoanalysis has done is it sort of played into the hands of bourgeois repression in the sense that it's you. What psychoanalysis is more than just sort of a, a way of thinking about the social, it's a practice. It's it a practice in which individuals, yes, which is yeah. productive in itself, but mm -hmm. people going in being diagnosed. And so when I'm reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, well, I think at all times CNG is asking itself, uh, you know, what is, what is liberatory? What's emancipatory? What in, you know, what can we say about either psychoanalysis or Marxism or the socius or the social, that's indeed emancipatory in any way, which is, you know, fighting against this, I think, against this trend towards, you know, systematizing, right? Mm -hmm. Systematizing ways of thought. Mm -hmm. And psychoanalysis is beautiful in the way that it systematizes thought and theory. Some, um, some psycho, I mean, certainly Lacan would, like, take that to the extreme of even systematizing a thing that we absolutely cannot see and describing it as the structural language like from Saussure and others that just you know it's sometimes it's difficult to swallow mm -hmm. and I think even like and Guattari being you know the radical he was the militant psychiatrist is where he was was like I, I'm I'm going to take a step back from this right? I mean and perhaps it's like a sign of how radical it is in those particular regards like Lacan disowns this book and yeah. disowns these two and like won't talk oh, to them for the rest of his life actually Ironically, one of the first things that I kept thinking about when I was reading this is what were Deleuze and Guattari's relationship with their mother? Like, I really, <laughs> I really it was sort of this, like, unconscious, <laughs> expressive thing. It's like, do they because, have something? I mean, there's something there. Well, because, you know, it's my initial thought is, what are they fighting against? Sure. Mm -hmm. But in that sense, maybe Freud, just to play devil's ad advocate, I mean, Freud isn't totally to be trashed because mommy and daddy can also just be symbols for other things. Mommy and daddy can be symbols for norms. So it's like, are we fighting against mommy and daddy? Do we lack something that daddy has that we want? Or is it like, or can we kind of make it a metaphor? Just a thought. Uh, well, uh, I think that when they brought up Jung, for example, that's, that's where sort of Jungian psychoanalysis comes in and says, but all other things can be symbols, right? Um, so, you know, trains and cars and other things that, that people bring into the that's analyst's office can be symbols as much as mommy and daddy can yeah, be. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and I think that that's what they're attempting to say about, you know, especially with Lacan, like the name of the father and all mm -hmm. these crazy, you know, which I think is just crazy theories about, like, what absolutely structures the way you think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and why this, you know, the so-called, and I'm not sure if it's politically correct to say schizoid, but, you know, they, in the book, use that term. Um, what a schizoid believes um, and what we hold to be hallucinatory or delusional are actually liberating ways of thinking. Yeah. Right. right. Which, and there also, I think he draws a fine, there's like this fine line between 
romanticizing, romanticizing the schizophrenic and also using them as this metaphor to represent everything that's outside. Is of it a metaphor though, right? Because like they want to get us out of kind of representational patterns. Yeah. Of I'm not sure. If, I don't know what it is, but I don't know if metaphor. Yeah. Is Maybe it. metaphor is the wrong word, but they're definitely talking beyond the it's body. Practice. The pra- it's practice. It's practice. Practice. Right. practice. That's what yeah. it is. So, so the schizophrenic as the process of sure. going I, around. Right, which the mother father triad, which is a way again a way of thinking about machines. It's a way of thinking about process. It's a way of thinking about the body without organs yeah. too. Right, that these are processes; they're things. I mean, the question that I had in thinking about desire is that while they're clearly not the same thing, right? Desire is something like affect. It seems to me, it's not affect. I think it's a little bit like affect. It's like affect in that. It's also like God. I mean, they talk about it like a, no, they talk about it like a divine force, like a divinity. And I guess that goes to a comment I want to make later about how this is actually similar to texts in other fields of study, you know, whether it be like theology or ecology maybe, but um, in that it produces, but it's also, it produces other things, but it also reproduces itself. So it's sort of circulating always everywhere, which is very much like in Ahmed again, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I kept. I was thinking about Ahmed a lot, which we'll get to in our next episode. Right. So, well, where do we develop these desires? I think that was the other part of this, right? Is that where do these desires come from? Are they totally. are they inscribed on on our so called are they inscribed on our bodies? Because they do talk about the re, you know reproduction, production, and, and inscription and recording. So, in one sense, do we develop desires as a result of our being within the sort of capitalist field or a field of the socius or however? You know, we, you know, trying as much as possible not to use too much of their jargon because it can be a little overpowering. Too late. Uh, too late. Uh, but how, you <laughs> know, on what level? A long time ago. <laughs> we right. That was the goal. So, I mean, they, they start with this, you know, or at least they don't start. But at one point they start talking about Melanie Klein's partial objects. Mm-hmm. And they start discussing at least the nature of how we as infants, you know, using the sort of Kleinian child psycho um, uh, psychotherapy, babble. psychobabble, uh, <laughs> you know, where do these desires emerge and how are they engendered? So that's one question is where do we obtain them? Yeah. I was confused about that too. Like from where does the desire come that they talk about? Does it have a direction? There's almost this unspoken way in which I kept pictured the, picturing the desire coming from some internal place, whether the it was internal to a machine or to a person. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't sure from where it was coming. See, this is why I think that thinking about it, for me at least, like affect is useful mm-hmm. because – if we think about it in terms of, you know, a force, like, that doesn't require a subject, it can mm-hmm. connect or pass through or be rearticulated by or through a subject or mm-hmm. a machine. But, right, because they're not, the question of origin is not something that they're particularly interested in, yeah. right? And well, they try to dismantle this notion exactly. of origin, right? Exactly. Um, mostly because the, the nature of the, the origin of desire in psychoanalysis seems to come from some lack, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and always grounded in the lack within that mommy. Right, they want to take desire a thousand, hundred billion percent out of lack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem, one of the biggest problems of psychoanalysis for them. But I mean, for them, I don't know. So the question would be, you know, even in this first chapter, I mean, it's a per, one chapter, 50 pages out of, you know, 300. Um, do they effectively <laughs> talk about desire in such a way as that they can take it outside of the psychoanalytic framework? But they don't want to take it entirely. So do they talk about it in terms of affect would be a better way of thinking about it. Is that what you're saying? It's not that it's a better way. It's that it was a useful way for me to think about it. I'm sure, like, people who know their Deleuze and Guattari better than me would be mad at me for saying it's like affect. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's definitely not the same thing. But it was a useful kind of heuristic for me to start thinking about, especially some of these questions of, like, not not what does desire do? Because they have lots of things that desire does. But this question of what is desire, if we're even going to ask that question, that's kind of what that was useful for mm-hmm. me for thinking about. And I think also the idea of where, from where does desire come, it's also the same thing as, like, from where does the universe come? In the same way affect is, like, <laughs> right. I remember asking you once, like, but I don't understand this idea of affect. Like, when does it start? Like, if it's all just sort of, like, you know, continual um, re-imprintations of, subjects with affect throughout history like when did it start in history and so anyways i think it's sort of like that it's like it existed when the universe existed That's well maybe well the other thing so on page 35 um at the very end uh you know they say 
or it says, for saying D and G together. <laughs> and if materialist psychiatry may be defined as the psychiatry that introduces the concept of production into consideration of the problem of desire, it cannot avoid posing in escal- uh, eschatological terms. What does that mean, eschatological? Uh, end days. Yeah, okay. usually end days. Uh, terms the problem of the ultimate relationship between the analytic machine the revolutionary machine and the desi- and desiring machines. And so when I wrote, I wrote off to the side this notion that, well, is materialist psychiatry then asking ourselves in what relation do people have, or must it always be asking the question of in what relation do people have within a capitalist order, right? So if they're constantly being inscribed and reprodu- you know, reproduced in a way, by you know something by capitalism. If we're going to say this is a critique, let's say it's a critique of capitalism. It is. Um, in what ways, you know, are they suggesting that in order to think about problems, whether they be mental or otherwise, we have to think about them as they relate to the broader issue of capitalism? Well, they always relate to the broader issue. So I think they would even take issue with your phrase of like a mental problem right because they say at one point that if we just think of you know desire is mental or fantasy is mental right. then we've already made the idealist mistake that they're trying to work right. against and we're not, we can no longer bend so we're talking about bodies course, right so it's, yeah. it's so physical and so it's a you know you know as a monist i think of you know when i think of something mental i automatically well i mean i autom- i co-implicate physical states with right. mental states Absolutely. so i mean so when i say mental when i say mental illness i think that's a co co-implicative problem of sure of i mean we just you know, right. need to spell that out oh okay yeah them, so i mean there's mental is never this pure thing yeah it's that. never so i'm obviously they're working against this like cartesian cogito where we're talking about ah oh, the mind and ah oh, the body and they're saying no that's absolutely wrong let's not do that right um and i'm on that board um i just sort of what i'm driving towards is this idea so they say the problem of desire which is still mm-hmm. a problem for them mm-hmm. um it will continue to be um is not in sort of end-days terms, opposing in end-days terms, the problem, the ultimate relationship between the analytic machine, the revolutionary machine, and the desiring machines. I mean, how does that sit with you? I mean, that I underlined that, and I, I had to wrap my head around that end statement because it came as the very end right before the section on machines. Right? I think it has something to do with, again, thinking back to the way that any formation or any you know connecting sets of productions – um, have fissures or they have breaks or they have mm-hmm. these disjunctions in the terminology they use um, that right desire is one way to break through the cracks that are always already um, you know second cracking. plug second plug yeah I think so yeah it's the second time we've used always already because <laughs> um, no one's ever used that at the graduate school. of course <laughs> never um so that, like, desire, and particularly the way they want to think about desire in terms of, you know, desiring production and social production, the way yeah. those co-implicate or co-act or co-practice, um, that, like, thinking desire for them, thinking desire in a materialist psychiatry, as they call it, is a way of thinking about the way that once we put together social production and desiring production, that enables us to think desire, like, beyond the constraints or beyond the kind of conceptual or ontological limits of whatever given formation, whether it's capitalism or whether it's psychoanalysis or whether it's kind of like a crude mm. form of Marxism um, that they're also critiquing. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I'm I think glad that's you... really helpful. And in that sense, so do you think then he's making a parallel between like the Oedipus Triangle and capitalism? Or... Can I... Oh. Go. So I, I wanted to say I'm glad you brought up ontological because the entire time I'm wondering, you know, what is the ontology or what ontology is DNG establishing, if it's, anything, right? It's like a shift from ontology to ontogenesis, right. right? Well, I mean, whatever that might mean, I suppose, like, we would, you know... Constant yeah, becoming. From uh, logic to metaphysics, etc. I don't know uh, why we're using those voices, as if we're not already talking. No, I know, like, uh, we, we need to have, like, a, a tobacco pipe or something in this room. Uh, no, I just think that, you know, for instance... I think How of this the as being. No, we don't. I know. Well, they don't. Uh oh. We're talking about epistemological problems. <laughs> when we start talking about ontology or ontogenesis, we're talking about human relations, like individual. I, I use that word sparingly. Sure. Social actors coming together, in the sense that true materialism is about everyday practice, right? Mm-hmm. Everyday activity. Good materialism. Right. Good materialism yeah. is. 
And so if if there's always going to be a problem of desire, and it will always be the case for someone like Guattari and other, you know, other people in psychiatry, um, you know, I think about this being uh, this going back to embodied experience, like yeah. always being about embodiment mm-hmm. on some level. It seems like no matter how much they try to pull like a taffy, you know, this, these concepts into a Mobius, strip, into a Mobius strip. Yeah. Uh, that we always return to embodied states. Do you think, actually this is a question I'm interested to hear what both of you think about this since both of you think about embodiment a lot. Do you think that machine is, a useful concept for thinking embodiment. I think it's surprising. I was really surprised mm-hmm. by it, actually. And I mean, I've, there's obvious reasons they would use it because they're talking about Marx, for example, and mm-hmm. kind of the very strictured and structured way that the um, Oedipal complex works. But I think it does in the sense that even when, if we go back to the way we learn about the body in, in science, in elementary school, we learn about it very much as these organs, as these functional entities, right? Like the RNA travels and does this specific thing and has a specific mission <laughs> right. and the liver does this. We don't think about our body as something without organs or something that's connected to everything beyond or that mm-hmm. has, you know, is, is not necessarily automatically individuated from nature, man from nature and the rest of the world. So in that sense, it's sort of, maybe like ironically pulls us back and makes sure. it makes us look at the own way in which we see our own bodies in the world. And in that way, I think it's useful. Yeah, I think it's – so this idea of machine I always try to wrap my head around is that um, I think the way that they're using the word machines comes from a kind of a Gabriel Tard uh, perspective on what constitutes society. I mean, he says that everything is a society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in one sense, we might think of a machine mm-hmm. as being the embodiment of that statement, if, to use embodiment, uh, <laughs> uh, as, as being the genesis of that statement, which is, you know, if all things are societies, they make up complex units of interactions, mm-hmm. but there's never really an individual, um, that the word individual is itself misleading mm-hmm. because there's always some other thing that's being involved within the state, mm-hmm. um, that they're sort of they're taking Tardian sociology and putting it into a a hmm. broader, maybe even grander abstraction. No, that's really yeah, interesting. That's really I mean, and I, I think you're right to think about the shift between what the implications of saying the individual are versus what the implications of saying the machine mm-hmm. is, right? And specifically in mm-hmm. terms of the individual is something that's about severing connections, yeah. whereas the machine has to connect to other machines. Yeah. And I think that, but I think that also kind of goes back to what Rachel was saying about um, kind of it's like a total rearticulation of how we like understand the body. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, it's the magic school bus uh-huh. via Deleuze. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of. Yeah, they're all they're all. Oh my God! Can they be the bus drivers? That's awesome. Yeah, no, I would totally be on that bus <laughs> in a heartbeat. Thought maybe we should go to our interview with Susan. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. I can't believe you're still listening, but I love you for it. <laughs> I love you too. All right, so um, here we are now with uh, an interview that we recorded a few days ago with Susan Buck Morris. social change, um, and we're so happy that she is joining us. Uh, Professor Buck Morris is, of course, an expert on Hegel, Adorno, Benjamin, critical theory, the Frankfurt School, and many, many, many other things, um, which we'll be talking to her about today. So, Susan, um, I was wondering if you could start, please, by talking with us a little bit about what the project you're currently working on is. Right. Uh, Well, this one is just kind of incubating. Um, I've been working on it really perhaps since 2006, um, and it comes out of the work I did uh, on Islam and, re- you know, kind of realizing that to talk about this world as a secular world doesn't seem to make too much sense. Uh, also uh, aware of the fact that I knew nothing not only knew nothing about Islam as a political movement, but also knew very little about 
religion. And as far as my colleagues are concerned, they're always, you know, in a quandary. What, you know, uh, Zila Eisenstein, who's an expert uh, in feminist theory, would call me and say, you know, why is Isaac uh, being uh, sacrificed? You know, what's going on here? <laughs> and of course, I knew next to nothing as well. And so I, I got into uh, particularly the first century because that's really where the whole thing hangs together so from the first century up until the the uh, 600s so the seventh century when Islam comes on the scene and the three these three monotheisms and how there could be three if there's only one God how could there be three of the one God and then of course the whole Middle East crisis that uh, never seems to end so I I got into it and then uh, further and further into it uh, particularly because around the year 2000, there was a lot of apocalyptic uh, writing, a lot of thinking, apocalyptic thinking still going on now about climate change and a whole mess of other things. So in this kind of post-secular moment, I kept going back to this first century. And so I'm writing about the first century A.D., which is not my field of expertise, but really quite fascinating. But I always write about it also from the disciplinary divide. So what makes, uh, uh, why is it that people who write about uh, Seneca uh, don't write about um, St. Paul? Why is it that people who write about the origin of rabbinical Judaism don't write about um, uh the rest of the biblical gospels or whatever, what makes these things divide and why? Because they're all happening at the same time. And actually, at the time, the divisions didn't exist. So uh, the pagan world was not a separate world. It was very much responded to by religious thinkers. Pagan religious, these are all categories that we put on uh, the first century from the 19th century. And so trying to think the facts of that moment without the categories of inheritance that we have given to uh, these very, very, you know, originary moments of Judaism, Christianity, or some sort of secular West, which the the uh, secular movement of the 19th century kept going back to the classics, right? So I, just to kind of open that whole thing again, and doing it around... Uh, a focus on the last book of the Bible, which is um, Revelation, uh, which everybody sees as apocalyptic. But what does apocalypse mean? It means revelation. It means to reveal what is hidden. It does not mean end of the world. It does not mean eschatology. But that's what it's taken to mean today. So I was fascinated by the fact that the book of Revelation which Isaac Newton, for instance, thought was written in 60 AD, hence predicting, and he believed in prediction, predicting the Jewish war, the Jewish wars, was actually written in 96 AD, hence describing in retrospect, as a historical fact, the actuality of the Jewish war. So suddenly the whole thing that seemed to be a projection into the future, prediction into the future, was actually a historical comprehension of the past. So this sounds like really weird, and what am I doing working in this kind of a space? But I'm actually uh, uh, using Benjamin's theories to do it. So Benjamin talks about the experience of a generation. And uh, for him... Here's an example. The experience of our generation, he wrote in 1935, is that capitalism will die no natural death. Right? Okay, The uh, if you know any of the work that's being done on St. Paul, St. Paul, for instance, by Badger. He's a popular guy these days. Yeah, he's very popular. He's very popular. But he's supposedly rescued as this sort of secular figure kind of talking about rupture and new, uh, something totally new, etc., but uh, St. Paul was writing, and the best book on this is actually Agamben, who writes about Kairos versus Kronos. So Kronos is this chronological time, but Kairos is this moment of, uh, of uh, the messianic interruption with messianic time, right? But what happens for 
that the experience of John's generation, which is one generation after Paul, is that Keros becomes endangered of being reincorporated into Kronos. In other words, the end doesn't come. This is the failure of the pro of the of the uh, message that uh, that Paul was convinced about. That you know the time that remained was very short. It was not short, and in fact, what was happening was no Christians were getting persecuted by the time of Domitian. What was happening, and that's not quite true, but almost true. So what was happening was that uh, uh, Christians were living very happily with the Roman Empire, and Jews themselves were. I mean, the, I mean, yes, the word Judea was used, but it was used in different contexts. Christian was a, is really a word that belongs to the second century, not the first. So you had people who actually thought that the world was going to radically change, and then it didn't. And then they're living with the aftermath of that phenomenon. So I kind of want to look at it uh, without any of the notions that these are founding moments of discrete religions but an actual crisis that happens um, uh, and that, you know, the crisis includes the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD. And when Vesuvius erupts, uh, Pliny the Younger tells us, uh, people were, were, what are the gods doing? And then someone said, no, the gods themselves are dead. So it's a time of total collapse of cosmological assurance. No matter who you are, rather what, what, whether proto-Christian or proto-Jewish or a believer in multiple gods, so it's a crisis of belief, and that seem, may seem weird that I'm so fascinated with that problematic, but that's where I am right now, and there are a lot of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I don't think that's weird at all. <laughs> My question was um, if you could speak about. Um, the life and, in a way, um, you could say the afterlife of Hegel and Haiti um, and just sort of the inspiration behind that as well as um, what you see as the kind of um, uh, the heirs, I suppose, in a way, um, of the book. So, Well, you know, because for me, this one follows naturally after Hegel and Haiti uh, because that book for me was... Um, its main task was really to break down these barriers between uh, philosophy, European philosophy, Hegel scholarship, etc., and an event, the Haitian Revolution, which under old models of Eurocentrism was totally on the margins. And to show that at the moment when it happened, Hegel was totally aware of it. And that separation is precisely the problem in uh, our reconstruction of history. So uh, for me, it's the natural next step, although for a lot of people, they want me to keep doing Caribbean studies, but I wanted there not to be a separate Caribbean studies, right, uh, any more than there should be a separate Hegel studies. Although people who teach Hegel have said to me, even if Hegel knew a lot about the Haitian Revolution, it won't change the way I teach Hegel. What, I mean, what kind of, theoretical or disciplinary impulse do you think that specific reaction comes out of? I, I mean, you know, it's the disciplines are not uh, not divine. We have made a religion out of these disciplines, right? And and we need a little secularization of that. Um, and a lot of a lot of the uh, uh, the people working on late antiquity, uh, which includes this first century, in fact, uh, would agree with that. Um, Actually, the whole period I'm dealing with is late antiquity. They're going back to those those times, and they're saying, for instance, um, Daniel Boyeran, who is a Jewish philosopher who works on Paul, right, as a radical Jew, right? Uh, Boyeran is contributing to a volume on the ways that never parted. There never was a parting of the ways between Christians and Jews, and that's true. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the Muslims could conquer so easily in the 6th century because a lot of people weren't, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, what the uh, Justinian II made the huge mistake of forcing conversion of Jews. And when it was a choice between that, and that's 500s, 
uh, and uh, and going along with this new ruler um, who gave total respect to people of the book, Jews were preferred Islam as the ruling, you know, thing. So, in other words, y- y- you haven't got a situation where these 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 are rigid divisions from the start, um, and it all depends how you treat other beliefs, how they're going to respond politically to your your uh, political dominance, right? Uh, so, uh, and there were monophysites who were called heretics by the ruling orthodoxy, and those monophysites were all the way through Syria, and, and, um, so, anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a total different picture if you go back to that moment, and our presumption that the whole uh, purpose of history is to produce these divisions is totally the wrong one, and so the idea is to redeem. It's a kind of resurrection, redemption project that I myself have redeem uh, a, a period of uh, a, a place where supposedly these irreconcilable divisions happen to redeem a kind of um, not necessarily a unity of, in that area but a lack of uh, antipathy a lack of binary a lack of uh, you know divisions that are then foundational for ways that we today cannot understand them right so it's really trying still to work on that project, which I guess you could say is really a philosophical project or a theoretical project. So that was to answer your question of the reception of Hegel and Haiti, which in lots of ways has been received that way, as, as it, it's, it's mostly radical because of the way it troubles the categories of knowledge that we have accepted as second nature. So I'm wondering also, it's a little bit of an anachronistic question, but um, thinking about Hegel and Haiti, how would that apply to various struggles, freedom struggles today, albeit in different forms? So is there Hegel in the Arab Spring? Is there Hegel in Palestine? Oh, what a wonderful question this is. Um, Yes, but (laughs) but only if he is taken out of the categories uh, that, you know, uh, in which he has become entombed, let's say. And, and that's that's the liberating, I mean, there's a double liberation. There's a liberation that goes on uh, of actual political movements, but it should liberate our mind as well to appropriate terms differently. And, you know, I, in some contexts, I talk about this as a communist inheritance of the past. That is, the past doesn't belong. You know, I mean, Hegel can be useful in Cairo or wherever, if Hegel is useful in in Cairo, right? If people working there for liberation find him useful, but it's not as if they do something that's liberating, we say, ah, that's a manifestation of Hegel, right? Mm-hmm. We already know that because Hegel has given us the tools to think that through. But, I mean, as a matter of fact, the only reason Hegel could be useful is because the dialectic has opened again in a way that Hegel could, himself could not predict or control, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means that the whole, I mean, democracy is not a word that belongs to anyone. And the concept of democracy indeed does develop further than Hegel, further than the French Revolution. Uh, and now it takes a different kind of, uh, of embodiment. I think embodiment is a really important word there. I mean, when we're doing this kind of work and, you know, allowing that these theorists or philosophers don't belong to anybody. I mean, what is even kind of the research and reading and writing practice of doing that for you? So when you go to write about the first century AD or you go to write about Hegel and Haiti, I mean, what kind of, you know, embodied practices or methodological practices or theoretical practices, acknowledging that those are all bound up with one another, and what does kind of the research practice and thinking practice involved in perhaps ways that are different than, you know, other dominant modes of theorizing or even earlier work that you've done or work that you think others are doing? It's a really good question, and it's one reason why these books take such a long time to (laughs) write. (laughs) Because on the one hand, you I respect the scholarship that's out there, and it's good scholarship. It's not that, you know, they got it wrong from the get-go. I mean, they spend their lives learning about a certain field or whatever. And you you must defer to that that superior knowledge, 
But then, and then, so you go into this field, you don't know anything about it. Let's say yeah, you have to read C.L.R. James ten times through before you get, <laughs> before you can understand even the facts of what's going on, right? So then, uh, as you, but it's not just James. You, you you read everyone who is important in this debate, right? So you read them, and then you realize, okay, what is the debate? Where are the points of friction? Where wh wh What are the questions that uh, the experts feel are important? And why? Because the questions do not arise naturally out of the material. They have to do with the whole contradictory way that that, that stuff is being passed down, right? So then you, you kind of try to find the moments of friction, the moments of, you know, intensity of, uh, of debate. Um, and try to, and then you see that's a whole other level. It's not the facts of, on the ground. It's this whole other level of the history of interpretation or historiography or whatever. And then, and and it's that's also very politicized. Always very politicized. Uh, so uh, you know, if C.L.R. James says that uh, Haiti is a modern revolution, but he says it in a context of Marxist thinkers who think slavery has to belong to the feudal era, then you know that sets a problem of how we, you know, interpret Marx and is it necessarily connected with the stagist understanding of history. So you begin to, you know, kind of decipher those areas. And then you you want to kind of enter and trouble the the structure of the debate by, you know, working on the boundaries that supposedly separate uh, categories um, and show that those categories are not so easily separated, right? But then you try to write your own thing. And when you try to write your own thing, you keep on getting sucked into the existing frames of scholarship. And I think anytime you're doing original scholarship, certainly you'll feel that when you're writing your dissertations <laughs> so strongly, right? Because how do you avoid, you know, just writing a footnote to what someone else has written, right? How do you actually really shift the ground according to something that you're seeing that they are by definition not seeing because they're not you, right? And and so that takes another writing. And sometimes, you know, that's why I always tell students, don't feel badly if you write three chapters and throw every one of them away. Yeah. <laughs> don't feel badly. <laughs> but give yourself some time, right, to let that happen because sometimes you'll see, no, I'm not, I, I haven't... Um, I haven't gotten to the space, you know, I haven't gotten there yet. And then you have to dismantle it and then do it another way. And it's hard work because you're working on the level of absorbing the facts, understanding the facts, and then shifting the critical, the ground of the frame of comprehension, and then, you know, producing another, another frame, uh, that obviously is also going to be uh, limited, it's, but you can't fall into the trap of relativism, right? So it's it's very tricky stuff, and uh, I I mean I have to you know say that many times I feel like uh, it's a lost cause, but then I go on and I keep reading, and then I get excited again, and then I think, well, you know, this is the process of writing, right? So yeah, is that an answer? I, I think I so. Know. I mean, I think that this. This is a perfect segue into something that um, has that I've been pondering, and um, and also I love this conceptualization of secularizing the disciplines in a way, um, because the question is, you know, what do you see at the intersection of political science and philosophy, um, and, and and are these disciplines should they be sort of disciplinarily split, and if they are at the if they do intersect, what do you see at that intersection? Well, it was funny because uh, we were kind of reviewing after these meetings, uh, like the the list of books that you're supposed to know to take the theory exam, right? So I took liberties with it yesterday, and I just you know crossed out all the ones <laughs> I thought were relevant and added a couple of others. But also realized that that list was not what I read when I do political theory or what I you know. Yeah, what I read when I do political theory. I mean, I still thought it needed a lot of updating, um, but there could still be a canon which is perhaps not exactly the way that I'm doing things. I mean, I, there are times when the project of Deleuze or Judith Butler or uh, maybe Wendy Brown, but more Judith, I think that 
although we're doing it differently, we're doing it a little bit, um, you know, in, in sync with a kind of desire to question the, the, the givens of thought in political theory. So, I, you know, I do, I do feel a kind of, you know, that like I'm on similar ground, if not my ground, then at least similar ground. Um, so, I mean, I would say Butler, a book like Gender Trouble, a book like, uh, or even Antigone's claim on Hegel, she, she's just taking that and putting it in a whole nother space and, um, and rescuing that book by allowing it a life, an afterlife in another space. And I can use a lot of this language of redeeming the past, rescuing the past, uh, uh, against the the religion of secularism, I can use a lot of the the language, uh, you know, that would be considered biblical in a way, or not biblical, but you know, that not belonging in in the space of uh, of political theory, that actually works very well to demystify this illusion of secularity. Thanks. will be in episode two. I was only part of the brilliance that was Susan Buck Morris chatting with us. Um, so I think it's now time where we go to the last but not least important uh, segment of the show. And we really have no idea uh, how this is going to go, let's be honest. Um, we're going to give some advice. And again, send us questions, always already podcast at gmail.com to answer. But our first question comes from an anonymous grad student in Canada. Rachel, you want to read it for us? Sure. Dear Madams, I would like to submit a question about graduate school. How might one go about asking a dissertation supervisor to step down, ooh, a supervisor but still remain on the committee? It's possible. It's tricky, but possible. I think that, I think that the conversation, first of all, obviously diplomatic. Yes. Um, but the conversation needs to center around the importance of your work and how another person on the committee or another person that you're inviting to be the chair um, is going to advance the work that you're doing in ways that, you know, are that facilitate what you're doing. Um, because in that sense, I don't think that it's, it's a – you're not asking the person, oh, you're deficient and you have to step down. But rather the person's work that you're attuned to – Right is reflected in this other person, right? But it's also a matter. It's making that move while also being like, but I want to insist that it's important to me that you stay on the committee because it's exactly. three or four things in the work that you do, or like mm -hmm. the relationship we have, or whatever. Exactly. Right. So that it's a matter of both talking about why it's important to have this other person become chair without making the other person seem irrelevant, mm -hmm. or the current chair seem irrelevant. I should say. Yeah. Rachel, thoughts? I have nothing to add. I think that's great. But it's, it's tricky, though, right? It's it a is. Little, it's a little risky. I mean, it depends on the personalities involved, obviously. Um, the other thing is that a lot of faculty are so busy, they might secretly be really Yeah, I think in many instances they probably would be. And, uh, and I think that, you know, given certain kinds, given that every faculty member has a particular area of specialization mm -hmm. um, and that this person needs to have a specialization, the chair needs to have a specialization that's going to advance the dissertation of the student mm -hmm. most, you know, in, in terms of, like, I don't know, better, I don't know. Uh, so in that diplomatic way, say, yeah, be on my committee. I want your input. It's always going to be important. However, I would really like to see this person be my advisor. What happens if, let's say, hypothetically, we walk, this person walks into the situation and they tell their current chair, you know, these things, and the chair says, I'm either your chair or I'm off the committee. I think what if you get that kind of ultimatum? Which is legit. Which is legit. You, you know, can get teaching relief from that. Yeah. 
I think that honestly in that situation, the person has to gauge the importance of having this current chair on their committee. Is it substantial enough to wear? Having this person as chair, you know, is going to hold you back. Um, or are you, you know, really, are you just riding the fence about having this person on the and chair, right? if this person insists on remaining as chair and not being involved, can the person you'd like to be chair still be, like, the number two on the committee? True. I mean, because the person and that you involved, want is chair, right. And, you know, do you think that you can ask this person to perhaps play a bit more of a role than the traditional other second. Another member of a committee. Well, because the it's second is going to be giving, you know, is is going to be reviewing your work more so regularly it than on the, like norms yeah. and structures of whatever department this person is. Um, but I feel like, you know, in terms of having the person that you want as chair still staying on because you want your committee to consist of these people, um, I feel like then that person who ultimately will serve as your second would do it for you um, because they obviously like your work um, and you've 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 also been courting that person for a while, so. Um, and they pr they probably want to work with you. Um, so, one important sub question: What would Deleuze and Guattari say? What kind of advice would they give in this scenario? Screw committees. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't believe in committees. Anymore. Do they have any useful advice for our anonymous grad student in Canada? Um, Become the machine, but not Marx's machine. Uh, always be in a state of becoming. Okay. How about I'm sure that? That's super helpful. Yeah. Oh, right. There you go, anonymous grad student. <laughs> really in Canada. We've solved your problem. Uh, <laughs> we have one advice. more question. This question is no, perhaps trickier on the surface than it actually is. This is from, I don't know if this person wants to be identified or not, but we will call them C. Okay? C. Hi, C. C. Bertrand Russell and John Rawls are tied up on, both tied up on train tracks, unable to move. I would have plenty of time to save them both, except that happy hour is nearing its end. Do I save these two paragons of moral philosophy, or do I have a margarita? May I go first? Yes, please be. Um, C, I believe that you should go for the margarita. And here is my perspective on the matter. I believe that these two moral philosophers have done extraordinary wrongs to the realm of philosophy. Are you making an utilitarian move? I am actually becoming a Benthamite in this, oh, in this regard. never thought that was possible. I don't think so either, <laughs> except in this one moment where I think to myself, do I really want that margarita? Or do I really want these two people who have ruined philosophy to continue and live? Now, here's an interesting thing that C does not pose in their question. Rawls and Russell might just be, like, tied down to the train tracks. There's no stipulation that a train <gasps> is actually coming. And maybe they want to be tied down to the train tracks. That's a possibility. True. So I think that means we're, we're in agreement here. Well, I mean, if we I go the Russellian route, uh, you know, let's, do, yeah, let's use logic here and deduce that, in fact, a train is probably, you know, at some point in the near or distant future going to... Sure. Also, there's Run a savior mentality thing going on here. Maybe they don't need to be saved at all, and they want to just stay put where they are. Yeah. And so, Savior C should just indulge in said margarita. So, what if, you know? What if you come across these two people? Which, by the way, you're probably hallucinating because both of them are dead. Yeah. Um, you would probably first need to question your own sanity. Sure. Um, and but second, because you've probably already been indulging in margaritas. Um, but then, you know, maybe even thirdly, in that sense. Uh, you know, wonder these two people who are always about intentionality, um, you know, maybe they've intended, like Rachel was saying, to be on the train tracks. Now, there's one more, two more parts to this. First of all, is we have to put ourselves behind the veil of Margarita ignorance. Ah, uh, yeah. What if we were Russell or Rawls in this scenario? Don't God we forbid. Have to ask <laughs> Well, to be Do honest, we have to ask what then our moral imperative is. Uh, well, I mean, to be honest, if I were behind the What's veil the of margarita, of railroad justice. Uh, I mean, in this sense, if I were behind the veil of margarita uh, ignorance, I um, honestly wouldn't care that I was on a railroad track. I'd just be staring That's at the sky. That's really dangerous. Please. I know, really, isn't it? Um, but you know, you brought it up, of, right? Well, there are actually a lot of railroad tracks <laughs> yeah. in my seat of the subway tracks. They are. Um, you just going through a dark place. Why such so a dark see, place? Thanks see. so much for asking right. the question. <laughs> are, are, is one drunk and on railroad tracks? I, you know, maybe in that sense they ought to be safe. Also, let's be honest. Rawls doesn't really care about who or what is on or near the railroad tracks. That's a really good point. So this is like cosmic justice, cosmic vengeance on Rawls. Is that what you're thinking at? Well, you're a little bit putting words in my mouth. <laughs> Just a little? 
<laughs> I really think that maybe we need to talk to ask C what's going on here and why this person has such a an a axe to grind with Russell and Ross. It must be like a reconstructed philosopher. C, what is your relationship with your mother? Perhaps there's something there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to return to D&G, right? Is there a mommy-daddy-me relationship that's happening Crucial here? question. Which one of Russell is mo- and Rawls is mommy and which is daddy? Russell or is definitely daddy. daddy. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm glad we're in I think they're that. both daddy. It's a really good... Well, yeah, we don't have to be so... Well, true. First of all, you well, know, heteronormative. Secondly, is, kind of gender normative, yeah. but... That's a great point. So maybe they're 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 both daddies, but right? Who knows? I think we figured this question. Wow, we <laughs> really, yeah, we we figured it out. All right, enjoy so, um, that margarita. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on that note, um, our next episode is going to feature a talk about some chapters, which we'll post on the website from Sarah Ahmed's Cultural Politics of Emotion. It's going to feature part two of our interview with Susan Buck Morris. It'll feature more stellar advice giving from the three of us. Clearly. Um, and some more times where we say always already. Yeah. So thank you, B. Thank you, Rachel. I had a lot of fun. I hope the listeners had a lot of fun. I certainly did. Did you? Did you? Did you? This is a question for you, the listener. Come comment on our website. There are comments on our website. You can come talk to us. We'll talk back to you. That's um, You know, visit yeah, the we website. Will. Email us. Give us some feedback, download, tell your friends to download, uh, and come visit us again next time on the Always Already Podcast. Bye, guys and gals and people in between. The Always Already Podcast is created by B. Altman, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon, all at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Visit us at alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook. Email us at alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to my dear friend Jordan Cass for providing the music for the show uh, with covers of The Beatles Norwegian Wood and You and Who's Army, and also No Surprises by Radiohead. Thank you. See you next time. Always already. Podcast, podcast. Always already. Podcast, podcast. Always already.